My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the fourth official episode of The Riley Rant. It's hard to believe that we're already a month into this thing. And if you notice, those first three episodes involved me talking at you for 20, 25, 30 minutes. And I thought as we continue to push out new episodes, why don't we get new voices and perspectives into the fold? Why don't we allow other people to come on, share their insights? And I couldn't think of anyone better to be the first guest on The Riley Rant than Khalid Love. Khalid Hills from the great city of Charlotte, North Carolina. I met him in 2011 when we started as freshmen at Princeton, and since then, um, it's been just history. He's done so much on campus, uh, from leading the charge on sort of holding the the university accountable. He's also been very instrumental in um, promoting the first ever African American Studies colloquium. So at Princeton, we have minors or certificates, and we both minored in African American Studies, and he and another person you know, thought of this great idea of bringing the concentrators. There were a few of us in this pod, but he had this idea of bringing us all together where we could come and meet on a weekly basis, share our thesis research, and get feedback from our peers who had some similar knowledge and discourse around African-American studies and how that related to our, our majors, whether it be politics or history or religion. And so it's so amazing to have him on this show. We have First Campus Center, this famous campus center at Princeton where people go to hang out to grab food. And there would not be a day that wouldn't go by that you would not see uh, Khalid and I talking on those blue couches about anything relating to the political, the professional, or the personal. So I have to give some credit to Khalid for even the concept of this podcast because it was him who got me started on this ranting about all things political, professional, and personal. So without further ado, I'm so excited to introduce Khalid. Khalid, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Um, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Uh, um, you know, I think it's funny because actually I was thinking about uh, coming to the Riley Rant uh, whenever you first started. I was like, you know, I got to get on the Riley Rant. Um, and so you, you texted me uh, this past Thursday about it, and I was like, yo, you literally can read my mind. <laughs> you know, well, so, with uh, everything that's going on, I was like, I have to get lit on the show because there's so much that's happening and when i started this i was like oh i'll have some topics each and every week but i mean from the cnn alerts every day from executive orders being signed to just so much happening in the world i was like i need to go back to those college days where i could run up to khalid <laughs> um and first and talk about these things so really excited to have you on the show so as i mentioned before we talk about all things political professional and personal and so why don't we start with you just giving us an update in your life on something political professional or personal that you're you're sort of addressing or dealing with now. would love to hear that, and I'm sure the listeners would too. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'm, I mean, this this past uh, academic year, I've been – so I'm, actually, I'm back at Princeton right now. So I'm doing the teacher prep program um, to get my certification to teach math. Um, mm-hmm. So this past semester, I've been taking, you know, classes and, and all the coursework that satisfies the, the course requirements. And then this upcoming semester, I'm going to be doing my student teaching and so I'll be starting my clinical work actually tomorrow uh, at the John Witherspoon Middle School. 
which mm-hmm. is about 10 minutes away from the university, so it's pretty close. So I'll be teaching eighth grade algebra, uh, so I'm excited about that. So, you know, hashtag teach the babies, um, <laughs> you know. So I think that that's kind of, you know, you know, I'm passionate about education, so it's just that's the space that, I, that I'm occupying right now. Um, professionally, and that, and that's, not, that's not new for you because you've done no. a lot of tutoring and stuff at Princeton, uh, math tutoring and things of that sort. So this mm-hmm. is a nice extension of what you've been doing already. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, politically, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's, I think, you know, it's, I, I'm at a place where, you know, I'm just trying to kind of both distance myself from all of the news and stuff just just for self-care, but also kind of wanting to stay engaged and stay informed. I think I've been kind of trying to find the perfect balance between, between engaging and, and kind of disengaging, so... It's been a struggle, um, you know, the past couple of weeks just trying to consume everything. But, but you know, I think political education is always necessary. So, you know, I think it's just important to always kind of stay informed about stuff. So Definitely. And when talking about that, you know, desire, that self-care, which is so important, but even how to engage and how to disengage, I think that what we're seeing now, whether it be in the Democratic Party or Republican Party, people trying to really assess what happened, trying to get their perspectives into the forefront, trying to do sort of an autopsy report like the one I did last week. And in last week's episode, I basically tried to begin to create a foundation for understanding how we ended up in this predicament. And it was focused primarily on the Democratic Party. And I basically talked about, uh, for those of you who listened, you may remember, but I basically talked about how I think elitism within the party, so the party elite superdelegates, you know, giving this impression of inevitability within the Democratic Party played a part in building out some tension that didn't allow for the party to be unified. You had neoliberalism trying to broaden that umbrella of the Democratic Party, trying to bring in wealthier um, elites, and so trying to create cater to them, which creates policies that are incompatible when you're trying to protect the interests of the wealthy, but also say that you're for the working class. And then we looked at inflated expectations how we sort of thought that there was no way Donald Trump could ever win, and then external factors. So when you think about that Comey letter, when you think about gender and this you know, idea that women, um, even sort of growing up, are labeled as bossy when they're assertive, all the way up to the boardroom where they're seen as too ambitious, which, which can turn off men um, and, and other people. And so I've heard many stories, I'm sure you have, of, of women with experiences in trying to climb or trying to be successful and those challenges that come into play. So in some, it was more elitism, these inflated expectations which affect the campaign strategy, and then those external factors like gender and the Comey letter that are just the foundation of my understanding of that. But since I have you on the show, I would love to get your perspective on what you think happened and if something in the podcast resonated with you or if you mm-hmm. wanted to add something or didn't agree with something, we'd love to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, I was I was listening to the podcast and I think um, – you know, one of the things that you brought up was this idea about elitism, right, and about mm-hmm. the tension that exists between party elites. Um, and you also brought up this idea of neoliberalism, which I think is really important um, because I think it, it, it in some ways characterizes uh, the political the political nature of what the Democratic Party has been about for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to really reckon with uh, both the race-inflected and the class-inflected nature of politics. Um, I think... This particular moment is an amplification of that. Um, I think when we think about you know the ways in which the Democratic Party has uh, tried to create pl- policy platforms that both acquiesce to the will of the elites 
while also trying to, to, to or proclaiming to be for the working class. I think we have to talk about the failures of those, of, of those policy platforms in the sense that they're incomplete um, and incompatible with a lot of the demands of uh, those pe- people on the ground, everyday working people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things in, in thinking about this election and thinking about the outcome, uh, one of the things we need to think about, I think, is this idea of um, how the Democratic Party has been invested in status quo politics and invested in doing business as usual and not really fully invested in what they say they're invested in. Right. So if they say that we're for working class people or we're for um, and I'm, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement for all Democrats. No, but no, no, I, I totally understand. Something, right, right, right. I think it's something that has kind of characterized uh, a majority um, or, or a large significant amount of the, the political discourse. I think, you know, we really need to expand our political discourse, Paul, because it's so narrow. Mm-hmm. It is so narrow. Um, and so I think, you know, that's something that's kind of like that was my initial reaction when you brought up neoliberalism. I think we'll talk about that later. But, you know, my initial reaction. Yeah. And I, and I think. That's some sort of great perspective and some great insight into sort of your thoughts. Um, I totally agree with what you're saying about sort of getting away from the true message, the true value. And this is something that hasn't happened overnight. It's been brewing for for decades and and years now. Um, But someone did write in to me after the uh, episode, and they were wondering just sort of why I left out race and how I think race played a part in the 2016 election. And so would definitely love to get your thoughts on that. My initial thoughts are just around how since the inception of the nation um, leading up to sort of different revolutions, whether it be industrial revolution or just experiences where you start to see a divide between sort of the wealthy middle class and poor Americans, how that divide Mm -hmm. sort of formed and, and sort of materialized over time and how people, particularly the wealthy and elite, the elites leveraged, this racial animus and this racial animosity to sort of mm-hmm. stratify um, our society across race. And so if you're a wealthy, powerful person, in order to quell the sort of anger and resentment of a white working class or a white poor person, you basically pass Jim Crow laws. You basically lead them to believe that you are more superior uh, than a black person. So yeah, forget yeah. the fact that you're poor, forget the fact that we may not be protecting your interest or have your best interest at heart with our policy positions. Don't worry about that because even if you're struggling, you at your lowest is still going to be better than a black person. And I think that that type of conditioning, which is also true in Africa, South Africa with the Afrikaners and the Africans and how Mm. in order to calm people down and to stop sort of uproar or revolt along the class lines is to basically focus on how, race can make you different, more superior. And so I think that when you look at that, that's created a, a condition today where where there's this divide, there's this animus, there's this belief that these others are taking our jobs, these others are coming into our communities, as Donald Trump said, and bringing in rape and, and, and drugs and, and crime. And so you have this, I think, positioning where this tension exists between races. Uh, but I'm I'm of the belief that if we came together and realized that this struggle was collective um, and that we do have to acknowledge the bias in, in, in the world and in the professional landscape, for example. But if we had came together and realized just how much we've been conditioned to believe that, oh, if you are a white person, you're better. Therefore, I can't work with you because we, we're not on the same level playing field. Our, our rights are not um, equally justifiable. So that type of thinking, I think, is what can sort of lead people to prioritize race, 
over economics, race over common sense, and I think that's where we get the stratification. But then I think beyond the voter, I think you have a situation where, and I did some thesis research on this, where black candidates Mm -hmm. actually don't do as well in elections um, in predominantly white districts because there is a belief among the white voters that that black candidate's not going to sort of promote their interest at the highest level. So in other words, they're going to prioritize the perspectives of black or brown people at the expense of white individuals. And so that um, is what caused uh, many black candidates to have difficulty getting elected. That's where you see the creation of majority-minority districts, which tried to create districts that are majority-minority to give people of color a chance to serve in Congress. But this is a very real phenomenon, and you actually see black candidates realizing this and actually trying to appeal to a broader, inclusive message, not doubling down on issues of race in particular, things of that sort, because that inclusiveness can help to combat this belief that as a black candidate, you're not going to preserve the interest of sort of the white voter. And so I think that from a campaign perspective, although in 2016 you had two white candidates, there was a stark contrast in how these candidates talked about race. You have Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, who was the sort of founder of the birther movement, or he sort of stoked the fires and the flames. That was sort of his rise to prominence in the political sphere of the birther movement. You have him attacking Mm -hmm. Judge Curiel, saying he's Mexican. That's why we're getting these unfair rulings, even though Judge Curiel was born in Indiana. Um, Again, calling Mexicans rapists, bringing crime. Whereas Hillary had this more broad-based, inclusive approach, um, social justice, you know, prison industrial complex reform, things of that sort. And I think... Again, you're seeing even through that research that coming out of prioritizing different experiences, racial sentiments, and how that can manifest itself in who people support and vote for. And I say all this acknowledging the fact that Clinton wasn't the, you know, most ideal candidate. You know, there was some baggage. There was some enthusiasm around that. uh, But I just thought that it was interesting to see how, from that perspective, race could have manifested itself in the election where, again, through these codified laws, people look at themselves as better than even though I'm poor, I may be higher up on the social total pole than a black person. So I may not complain about that. And then lastly, one thing I'll say with the voters is this belief, I think, about the American dream that we look at wealthy people and despite our current state, for some there's a belief that I can get there and I could get there um, if I work hard, I can get there if I try without realizing that there are structures in place, the deck is stacked against you. So how do we reconcile those things? So I know I threw a lot at you, but we'd love to get your thoughts on that that race. I've been thinking about that and how race manifests itself in the election. And I wanted to answer that listener's question. So we'd love to get your perspectives on that. Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I I think, you know, a lot of what you echoed is a lot of what you said, I think, echoes uh, my sentiments. Um, I think it's complicated, right? Because I think, um, I mean, you know, you talk about the history of, uh, racial stratification and how, you know, there's a through line that we have to think about whenever we think about how race played, how race played out in this election and how it continues to play out. Um, I think one of the ways in which we can understand uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's uh, perspectives on race is just through what they said in there in, in the debates, right? I mean, we have Donald Trump on, on one hand who is spewing all this racist bigotry about uh, Mexican people, about black people, about people, you know, black people living in the inner city, about how we living, black people living in hell. But then on the other hand, which I mean, I think that there's there's been an outward rejection of that as reductionist, as racist. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, you have Hillary Clinton, right, who you, who you said was, was sort of pushing more inclusive rhetoric. But I think it fails in some regards because 
to me, it's, it, it, it didn't seem as though she really uh, engaged in any meaningful way with race. Uh, she threw out a lot of vocabulary, right? She threw out systemic racism. She threw out, uh, you know, mass incarceration. She threw out these little, these, these buzzwords that, that are adjacent to race, but she never really took it fully head on, right? She never really reckoned with, you know, the ills of racism, the ills of how um, the Clinton administration, right, have, have you know, archi- have become the architects or the architects of the, the prison industrial complex, right? And how that intersects with, um with policing and, and, and a lot of different other uh, factors, right? So I think um, one of the ways in which her her, race, her justice platform failed was in terms of ac- fully accounting for um, in any meaningful way about how that um, would play out. But I think also, Paul, you know, it's what's interesting is how understanding the Trump voter, <laughs> I think that's been a, a conundrum uh, for many people, at least yeah. from what, I, what I've seen and heard, is understanding the, the Trump voter and, and you know, people sort of spin this narrative that, you know, the Trump voter was uh, the poor, you know, white person who lives in a trailer park, you know, in Wisconsin, right? That that is kind of become the archetype for who actually voted for Trump, when in reality, um, it's much more it's much more complex than and, and the, and the spectrum of the Trump voter is, is much more broad than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to understand is the ways in which whiteness governs the society. And I think, you know, inclusion is is difficult whenever white supremacy and whiteness are governing forces. I mean, whiteness has intensely governed um, the fabric of this country since, you know, since inception, right? And so I think we have to reckon with that. And we have to think about the ways in which um, whiteness has kind of um, sort of reasserted itself in this moment. Um, I think... What is interesting about the narrative about the Trump voter is that you know some people are saying, well, you know these are these are these are these are white folks who are you know disgruntled over the fact that they're losing out, or they they, they perceive that they're losing out. They perceive that you know this the rise of multiculturalism or or the browning of America is uh, in some sense resulting in a zero sum game for them. That you know their jobs are being taken, that their opportunities are being taken away and stripped away. Um, and, and what I sort of saw that as is signaling this idea about how the perception of how whiteness doesn't accord the same or how whiteness doesn't accord the privileges that it they think it should. You see, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and about how there is a under, there's an understanding of how uh, whiteness should structure society and structure people's outcomes. And so I think. You know, like the challenge, right? How do you explain white privilege to a poor white person, right? And it's just like a white person, a poor white person will say, like, well, I don't, I don't have white privilege. I'm poor, right? Mm-hmm. But it's kind of, kind of understanding that, you know, institutionally, what whiteness has done, right? Institutionally, what what, what, white, what white supremacy has done, um, and reckoning with how that ideology of whiteness and the expectation of what whiteness is supposed to give to you informs the decisions you make, informs the choices you make. Yeah. Right? Does, that, does that make sense? And so I think in some ways, you know, we can re- we can read this moment as oh, a sort of way in which whiteness, and I think this, and I think Paul, this is interesting because I think we need to, to talk about whiteness and white supremacy and how it's recentered itself. But I think the irony in it all is, you know, the irony of what whiteness is and the, and the, the mission of whiteness is to always center itself, right? Um, and so I think it's just, really, really compelling to think about that um, within the context of 
thinking about how we got here, one, but also thinking about how um, we were never really uh, over race, right? And I think that's kind of like the fiction that, you know, people painted with the Obama, Obama administration, you know, oh, we're, you know, post-racial or, oh, like that race doesn't matter. We've gotten over race because, you know, of President Obama. I think that ship has sailed, hopefully. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think it's just that we have to we have to think about how whiteness and how and how race govern the society uh, that we live in and, and, the, and the choices that are made and, and who is included and who is also left out of, of certain policy decisions. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting when you talk about sort of a poor white person saying sort of how do I have that white privilege and that may be hard to internalize or understand. But I think what's also fascinating is I don't know if you came across that video. I think it was circulating on Facebook. Uh, there was a black woman giving a presentation to a room full of white people, and she was basically saying, you know, raise your hand if you would want to trade places with a black person in America, and not one person raised their hand. So I think mm-hmm. at the at the lowest levels, there is this understanding that there is a certain amount of advantage. Now, there may be a, an argument over how big or small it is, but there is something there when people would say that they wouldn't want to trade places because there's an understanding that to be black or brown creates a certain experience and a certain outcome. So I thought that that was interesting. But I think a nice segue into sort of the governing aspect of, you know, 2016 election and beyond is sort of thinking about how the Democrats and Republicans go about governing. And I think when you're talking about the narrative of that Trump voter being the white working class and this narrative of the Democrats lost because of the white working class, when as you're arguing, as I agree, it was much bigger than that. And we have to be careful about continuing to push the narrative that it was simply the white working class that caused the election, because my fear is that if we double down and say, in order for the Democrats to win in the future, they have to win white working class voters, my fear is that we're going to go back to the Clinton-esque, the Bill Clinton-esque policies where you're trying to move further to the center to capture conservative Mm -hmm. Democrats and and liberal Mm -hmm. Republicans to the point that the policy outcomes leave you with deregulation, gutting of welfare, uh, with these trade agreements that are written by big business and are thrown on sort of the worker. And so I think that that's sort of fascinating to look at the expanding electorate and how the Democrats underperformed, you know, at least Clinton with respect to Obama across many different groups. And my hope is that as we go into preparing for 2018 and 2020, that we don't believe that we have to necessarily double down on white class or white working class voters alone, because I think that doing that overlooks the progress that needs to be made across race and the progress that needs to be made in so many other areas uh, with so many different segments of the population. And so I think when thinking about governing, more importantly, the focus should be not how do we double down and get these white working class voters back into the fold, but more so how do we create a progressive economic agenda that really resonates with the American people. And I think that Bernie Sanders was getting close to that. I know that he had his own struggles with you know, galvanizing the support and enthusiasm of people of color and getting that mes- the message to resonate with them. But you begin to see some initial um, rumblings of that collective action around these pr- policies that resonate with people and that bring different groups of people to the table right. um, to realize that we're all in some way, shape, or form fighting the same or similar wars. And so I thought that was a nice way to segue into just the governing aspect. And I know that this past week you were on Snapchat and you <laughs> did... <laughs> What's your uh, handle on Snapchat? You can get some followers from this. Uh, uh, DJ Khalid, uh, DJ K-H-A-L-L-I-D. That's uh, my Snapchat handle. Well, your, your Snapchat handle, I, I caught the last bit of it, and people were telling me about it, but you basically were 
doing a, a rant of your own, if you will, I'm on Elizabeth Warren. And I thought that was a nice segue into looking at where do Democrats go from here in governing? And I think what's been so frustrating for me, and I think what's been so frustrating, and I, I would compare it to, I don't know if you remember that first election that, or the um, Obama's re-election, but his first debate with Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. where he didn't have that energy, there wasn't as much excitement, um, and, and Romney, you know, undeniably won that first debate. I think Obama would agree himself, and I think he mentioned that. But I, mm-hmm. that, I, I'm kind of getting that feeling again, and that's what's scaring me, that feeling now of like, where's that fire and that passion, that energy that we need from the Democratic Party to let people know that they care about them, that they're rooting for them, and that they want to make it work? And I think that this is, again, that neoliberalism that's emerged, that's created mm-hmm. that disconnect and that distance. But how do we really get back to that? And so uh, we'd love to discuss that, but first I wanted to start with your thoughts on Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. and, and what played out in these confirmation hearings. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, so before I actually touch on one, I want to just real quickly go back to what you said about Bernie Sanders and make this quick point about how, you know, you said Bernie Sanders was sort of like the closest uh, candidate to someone who uh, talked in any substantive way about race and class, right? Um, I, I do think that one of the way, the, where Bernie failed, I think, was sort of conflating race and class. I think yeah. he, or he not even just, not even conflating race and class, but actually not talking about race at all. Saying that it was race, that, that saying that it was class, but not race. Um, I think we need both. I think it's a both and. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to talk about the ways in which, you know, race and class intersect, but neither is reducible to the other. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think so often, um, you know, in our political discussions, race becomes a proxy for class. Race becomes a, a sort of a surrogate or a stand-in for, 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 for class arguments. And I think we need to really... Um, decouple the two because they're linked but they're they're distinct right so i just wanted to make that point make that point um in regards to one what was interesting you know i, I was listening i was listening to some of the, the confirmation hearings and um you know as a big education advocate you know i was, I was looking at the divorce hearing um mm-hmm. and i mean it's it's pretty bad <laughs> like uh, you know like betsy DeVos really um just she's i mean plainly doesn't have the qualifications to be secretary of education. She's unfit. She's unqualified. Um, you know, by any, I think by any metric or, or measure, she's unqualified. Um, and I think Betsy, uh, or excuse me, Elizabeth Warren spoke to that in her, in her critiques. And she issued this 15 page report on Betsy DeVos, um, that discussed her inexperience with managing a trillion dollar budget, uh, her inexperience with, um, actually engaging in issues of public education. She literally doesn't have any clue about, um, policies that, for example, um, target students with disabilities. Like she had no clue about what the, what those laws were. Um, she is a pro- uh, proponent of vouchers. She's a pro- proponent of privatization. She wants to privatize uh, public education and public funding. And so I think by along many different fronts, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren talked about how uh, Betsy DeVos was problematic um, in terms of her her experience. Uh, or lack thereof for Secretary of Education. But then she goes right around and confirms Ben Carson for, for HUD, which was kind of uh, interesting, uh, to say the least, because, yeah. I, you know, and I think one of the things that I was thinking about, and this is one thing I was talking about in my Snapchat story, was just how, you know, it just signaled to me the ways in which the Democrats, the Democratic Party politicians are still invested in status quo politics. Mm-hmm. Um the ways in which they're still invested in, um, you know, 
and I, I don't know if you would call it, you know, political performance in the theater of, of, of partisan politics or, or what you would call it, but um, that they're not actually fully committed to um, the values that they, that, they, that they espouse. I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, I think we need to have a conversation about um, what the Democratic Party, who the Democratic Party is, what they've done, um, and what they're really about in terms of their politics. I think we throw around these, uh, these terms like progressive and liberal uh, and left right Mm -hmm. without any kind of understanding with any kind of critical understanding of what those things mean um and so i think you know it it becomes an occasion for us to revisit the salience of political labels the salience of what it means to say i am someone who is progressive or i am somebody who is liberal i am someone who is in favor of x y and z um right whenever you make these choices that seem to be incompatible with one another right she you know, I was with her, with her critique of DeVos. You know, I was with her. I read the report. Um, I thought that it was critical. I thought that, you know, it touched on some important issues. Um, but I just was kind of, uh, baff- not baffled, I guess, but but more so just uh, struck by, you know, her, her swift um, confirmation of Carson. I mean, I think that Carson is just as unqualified and unfit to lead HUD as is DeVos is unqualified to, to be Secretary of Education. So um, I just think that, you know, that this, this what this means for us, for, for everyday working people, for people who are resisting, for people who, you know, who want to figure out what, is, what to do um, politically, you know, in the future, we have to start putting more pressure on the Democratic Party. Um, because I think for, for, so, for so long, um, you know, the Democratic Party has, you know, been able to, capture the votes of black and brown communities, to capture the votes of those on the margins without any incentive to deliver um, substantive policy or to, to talk about in any substantive way the, the, the doings and sufferings of those on the margins, of those who are on the margins of the margins. Uh, you know, Paul they, they call that electoral capture, right? Right. Paul Freimer, a professor at Princeton, talks about this idea of electoral capture. And uh, Professor Eddie Glaude talks about this in his book, uh, Democracy in Black, about how Essentially, you know, for, for, for the past, I mean, I would say maybe like three or four decades, the Democratic Party has treated black and brown folks as a captured electorate, right? And they, they every four years, they herd us to the polls like we're cattle chewing cud, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, you know, they, they, they use these sort of scare tactics, these fear tactics to say, you know, um, if you don't vote, you know, the Republicans are going to, you know, can take control of, of Congress. They're going to take control of the presidency. You know, I mean, you heard this all throughout 2015, 2016. Like, you know, if you, if you don't vote, they're going to, you're going to get a Ted Cruz presidency. You're going to get a, a, a Donald Trump presidency, right? Um, that, there, that there was always coming, that those critiques were always coming from a place of voting against something, right? They were imploring people to vote against something mm-hmm. rather than saying, um, these are the things that we actually are proposing to transform the material conditions of folks, right? Not using this as a way to set up a lesser of evils argument, right? Yeah, and I think that's what sort of um, hurt them in the 2016 election because it, there was almost this level of, um, I wouldn't say it's snobbery, but there was just this belief that, oh my gosh, Donald Trump is so outlandish. He, his thinking is not on our level. No one's going to really fall for that thinking. We are taking the higher road. And I think they were blindsided by the fact that, again, like you were saying, you can call out and we should call out you know, Trump's outlandish behavior. We can never legitimize or normalize it. But we also have to start creating that alternative to say, 
you should vote for us because we're fighting for you, not because the other man or woman is evil on the other side or they're they're terrible. There has to be more because if you don't do that, you're going to get lack of enthusiasm and lack of engagement. If you look mm-hmm. at a state like Michigan, for example, where you lost by around 10,000 votes, I think that was the, the vote margin. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many of those votes could have come from, from people who got an inspired message and not just a vote for me, I'm not as bad as the other person. So I think that that's interesting. But one thing that also concerns me, and I think this really resonated throughout the the campaign with Michelle Obama's quote, when they go low, we go high, is that, again, it it, it was effective and it resonated with many people, and I think it was so fitting for this election cycle. But my fear is that the Democratic Party, or at least the Democrats in Congress, will take this into the governing process to say, oh, we're not going to be as low as the Republicans. We're not going to obstruct. We're going to try to get policies, prescriptions through. And I know that the Democrats have a desire to try to find ways to work with Republicans with Donald Trump. But again, my fear is where do we draw, draw that line? Because I think it's a very fine line between acquiescing and, and coming into the 115th Congress very demoralized from losing the Senate, losing the presidency, you know, having a Republican-controlled Congress. How do we have the the courage to go in there and, and not to necessarily use the same tactics as the Republican Party through obstructionism, but how do we begin to push back? That's what I'll be curious to see. It's how quickly do we acquiesce? And that's why your Elizabeth Warren sort of rant was so fitting, because you have an example where in these DeVos hearings, she's pushing back. That's the fire that we're looking for. But then with the speedy confirmation of, of, of Ben Carson, you know, you just don't know what you're going to get at times. And so I think that's where the tension is going to arise just in these next few months and definitely <laughs> for the 2018 election. So right. That's that's fascinating. But we, we sort of talked about the Democrats governing. Wanted to, before wrapping up, just get your perspective on Donald Trump governing. So I saw him this past week in um, Philadelphia. I saw him on TV um, talking at the GOP retreat in Philadelphia and I think the only saving grace for us, and I'm trying to find that, that light at the end of the tunnel, that, that glimmer of hope, um, I think the only glimmer of hope is that Donald Trump's policies are so outside of the mainstream for Democrats and Republicans alike that maybe there's some hope that they can be tempered and reeled back in. Reeled back in. So at the GOP retreat, when he's talking about building a wall which costs $15 billion or an infrastructure you know, program to put people back to work, which costs billions of dollars, you notice that the Republicans in the room weren't clapping at all or they weren't enthusiastically behind those policy preferences. In fact, if you remember throughout Obama's presidency, he had tried to put forth an infrastructure spending bill that Republicans shot down. So I just think that there's going to be even some conflict within the Republican Party around these fiscal conservatives not wanting to spend billions of dollars on building a wall not wanting to spend billions of dollars on an infrastructure program. And I wonder how that tension is going to play out um, within the party. But wanted to get your your thoughts on this most recent executive order with the Muslim ban, as, as some are calling it on Twitter, you know, sort of banning people from entering the country and this idea of who's an insider, who's an outsider in immigration policy since the beginning of time. Wanted to get your thoughts on just those two things. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's... It's a lot to consider. I, I think you know where we begin um, is um, clarifying or, or, or I guess defining our political commitments foremost, right? I think it, I think it becomes important um, because I think that there are a lot of fractures that exist uh, within both parties. 
Um, and personally, I mean, I don't, I've drifted away from sort of partisan politics myself. Mm-hmm. Um, really adhere to uh, a particular sort of Democrat, like, Democrat, like I, don't, I don't adhere to the traditional Democratic Party platform in terms of the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, you know, when we think about transformation, I think it starts with a, an incisive uh, definition of what our political commitments actually are. And then from there, uh, making choices um, that align with those commitments. Um, I think uh, for, so I'm kind of, if I were a Democrat, <laughs> for 20, <laughs> uh, uh, I, th- I think, you know, in terms of strategy for 2018, for 2020, it becomes important to um, understand and to, to map out what actually we stand for as Democratic, as, as the Democratic Party, and then what, um, what commitments? What are what are our commitments, and what are the, how are those commitments going to govern and inform our choices? Um, and so I think it becomes as important to resist Trump as it is to assert um, your own policy uh, platform that uh, speaks in some sort of substantive way to the needs of working class folks uh, across race, across uh, across difference. Um, in terms in terms of your second the second question or like the second issue, I think. Um, you know the Muslim ban. I've been I've been following. I've been trying to follow some. You know, in the, within the past forty eight hours, um, and I think you know it's just uh, for me. What I'm struck by is how some people are just surprised by the fact that Trump is doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like you know, like <laughs> yeah. he said this like four months ago, right? So it's like he said these things, and so I think now you know we're kind of seeing that play out. Um what's interesting, I think kind of loops back to what we were talking about earlier about, about whiteness and white supremacy. And I think, um, I was reading about the Muslim ban and about, you know, obviously this, the xenophobia, the intense xenophobia that's going on in the country. And I think it really, uh, I thought about Benedict Anderson's book. Uh, I was reading Benedict Anderson's book a couple weeks ago, his book, uh, entitled Imagine Communities. And he, and he talks about this idea of imagine communities as, um, these entities that are socially and politically constructed. Um, and I sort of see this as informing the project of nation building and the nation state. Because if we think about what the the, the purpose of um, these projects are in terms of strengthening uh, nationalism, strengthening patriotism, strengthening jingoism, right? Strengthening these ideologies that have to locate a threat, right? In an other. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly what this is doing. I think it's trying to create in my mind, some sense of a white utopia, some sense of, and I think that's kind of what was captured in the whole Make America Great Again, about restoring uh, a, a white utopia to, 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 to the American landscape. And so I think in some ways, what this, what this uh, immigration, what this immigration ban is, is indicative of is, is the ways in which um, white supremacy has always been central to nation building and the nation state. Um, it, it happened under Obama. <laughs> it happened and it's happening now, maybe to a, a greater degree, maybe that's amplified, but it's, it's, it hasn't really stopped ever. It's always been central to, to the to nation building. Um, and so I think we're going to have to, to speak honestly about what that means. And we have to speak honestly about uh, how uh, folks on the ground are going to resist because I think essentially I think my, 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 my hope is with the folks on the ground resisting. My hope is with, um, you know, the work that people have already been doing locally, um, 
you know, pressing their, their state legislatures, pressing their local governors or pressing their uh, local uh, county commissioners, pressing people at the local levels to try to make, um, you know, some kind of change, right? Because I think um, in terms of the broader social justice movement, we're going to have to think globally while acting locally, right? And I think it's, it's really important um, for us to, to think about what the political stakes are Mm-hmm. And how we're going to, and, wh- and what this moment demands of us politically, I think that's something that uh, politicians have to think about. I think that's something that, that everyday people have to think about. Um, how we got to this moment, all right, which means reckoning with the damage that has been done by both parties, reckoning the reckoning with the damage that whiteness has done to this country um, in the in the name of itself. Um, and I think, Paul, and I'm kind of skipping ahead, but <laughs> no, 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 that's uh, fine. You know, I, I think that, you know, we have to think uh, carefully about how to develop new cartographies of resistance, right? And by, and by cartographies, I mean uh, maps, guides, blueprints for, for how to resist, uh, for understanding how and when to engage politically and, and determining the values and the commitments and the principles that, that govern or, or inform the nature of our engagements. And so I think it becomes really important to be politically educated. I think it becomes really important to understand history, to understand um, the parallels between, you know, what's happening now versus what happened during the Obama administration versus what happened, you know, in the past. And so I think, you know, it's just, we're seeing things that have happened before, um, maybe with, with different articulations or with slightly different articulations. But, um, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw says to, we have to read, write, and re- read, rise, and resist. Um, yeah. And so that's something that I kind of incorporate into my daily praxis, um, both as an educator and as someone who um, has sort of this critical orientation to racial justice, to economic justice, social justice. Um, I think that's something that, 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 I think that's, that's going to have to characterize the spirit of our um, resistance if we're going to want to make any sort of substantive progress. No, I totally agree. And I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you have a busy week ahead as you're going to start at Witherspoon Middle School. Um, hashtag teach the babies. Uh, so, so <laughs> grateful for you to be on this show and, and to share your insight. Uh, I really mean this when I say I miss this. I miss having these conversations <laughs> on those blue couches in Princeton's first campus center. Um, but I'm so happy that you were able to spend some time on the show just sharing your, your insight. And I think that it's helpful to me because I can rant on the Riley rant all day long, but rarely do you get the opportunity to get those outside perspectives to sort of validate what you're saying, to critique what you're saying. And then I love what you did today, more importantly, to extend the narrative and to even push back against these closed-off logic and this closed-off reasoning that we can have with respect to the party. So I think even... In this conversation, you know, looking at politics from the perspective of Democrat and Republican without acknowledging that for many people, they don't find a home or community within any group. And so even pushing back against how we look at our resistance and transformation within the confines of the status quo was even something that this conversation highlighted to me that I have to begin to push back against to say, yeah, we have these two party system, but how do we begin to reimagine um, and use this cartography that you mentioned, this, this blueprint? to really reimagine how we view ourselves with respect to the state, how we engage with the state, and then mm-hmm. how we impact the state to bring about the changes that we want to see. So mm-hmm. really, really appreciate your insight. Did you have any closing words? I know that um, earlier in the conversation you were talking about how you're interested in getting that podcast yourself off the ground. So no pressure oh. if you don't have all the details, but I uh, yeah. would love to hear more about that as you prepare for potentially launching your own content, your own blog, your own space. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, a friend and I, um, we have we have something in the works. Uh, we've been thinking um, about you know how it's going to look for the past couple months, for the past several months actually. And we've kind we've been kind of spending the latter part of last year building our content, um, and so we hope to uh, launch this new digital project this year that will kind of be, um, I guess, sort of part podcast, part blog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to talk more. It's going to be more politically oriented. So it's going to talk more about. Um, race and politics and um, social racial justice and I'm going to talk specifically about um, the movement and and where the movement for black lives is going mm-hmm. um, and then you know how we can think about um, what political education looks like uh, in 2017 um, so stay tuned for that so that, that's that's coming that's coming yeah I'm so excited <laughs> for that because I, I feel like I've gotten this treasure trove of all your knowledge so I'm so excited <laughs> that you're actually gonna seriously and set push that out into the the world and allow people, whether through Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever your platform, to really begin to engage with this stuff uh, because I think we take for granted um, how amazing it is to have these conversations, to think about these things, and to discuss them. And I know that many people may share these sentiments. They may disagree, but um, it's still worth having those conversations and those perspectives put into sort of the general discourse. So I was so excited when I heard that you are doing that. Definitely will stay tuned for that and definitely will help to promote on my end once that officially launched. But again, thank you so much for coming on the Riley Rant where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. I can guarantee you this is your first time, but it won't be your last. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, man. Appreciate it, Paul. Thank you for having me. Well, again, thank you all for tuning in to the fourth official episode of the Riley Rant. Uh, thank you so much to Khalid Love for being on the show, a native of Charlotte, North Carolina who dropped some knowledge on us on how to think about the Democratic Party, how to think about resistance, how to start creating blueprints for the future. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you will continue to tune in to the Riley Rant. And remember that if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley Rant.